Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you're in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. Well, I'm going to have you open up Exodus chapter 34, and for all the teenagers that went on uh, our recent trip, which would be, as I see today, would be Raymond, Frank, Lauren, and Cara. You already heard this sermon, so you can go to sleep if you want to. I'm just kidding. You need to hear it again, and it'll be a little bit different, but this is a message that the Lord put on my heart before we went on the trip, and I actually shared it at Kevin McMullen's church in Independence, Missouri, in Kansas City, the Sunday before we went. It's gonna, I'm going to share it a little bit different now than I did then, um, but the reason why I want to share this message with our church today is because while we were on the trip and the miraculous things that I saw with my own eyes, and I think many of you saw that in our teenagers last Sunday when they, when they came up and they shared the things that God is doing in their life, uh, just confirmed for me that, that there is still hope for, our, our, for, for revival in our nation. And so I want to share this message with you today. It's called, Is There Still Hope? And I'll tell you right away, the answer is yes, there is hope. But before we get to the hope part, I've got kind of a lengthy introduction, I guess. Um, We're going to look at several places in Scripture. I'll give you some homework if you want to read more to get more out of it. Uh, But we need to understand and we need to be honest with where we are today as a people, with where we are today as a nation. Because if we can't be honest with ourselves, one of the things I loved at the youth rally, at the youth conference we went to, were the common themes related to having an encounter with Jesus that were running through all the different messages and definitely in the worship. Man, the worship was powerful. And just this encounter with Jesus. And one of those common themes that kept coming up with different ministers is that we need to begin to be honest with ourselves. That being honest with God means that we stop lying to ourselves. And if we can't be honest with ourselves, then, in, then there really is no hope because we've been deceived. And we live in a world today that is working overtime to deceive us. You know, we went through, the, talked about this film, The Essential Church. Uh, we went through this whole COVID thing and then, you know, it was, became obvious after a while that we were being greatly deceived. Not that the virus didn't exist, the virus existed, exists, but we were being greatly deceived as a people. And uh, we now are, have gone through this whole Ukraine-Russia thing, and it's just the, the, the latest time that we're being deceived into sinking our riches into to wars that really have nothing to do with our lives, and uh, not taking care of things that, that we have uh, right, right here at home. And... Um, uh, we live in an age of great deception. Now, I don't want to disappoint anybody because I know some people like to see UFOs and talk about things that are out there in outer space, but I'm, I'm warning you right now. 
we are on the brink of a new deception. And you, you better wake up and keep your eyes focused on what the Word of God uh, says. Because as we're being deceived, what happens is we're not honest with ourselves, we're not honest with where we are, and we, we don't notice how, how fallen we really are as, as a nation. So I want to start with Exodus chapter 34 at some things that, that God said to the people of Israel before he led them into the promised land, and, or, and at the very beginning of their journey to the promised land. And in Exodus chapter 34, I'm going to begin reading with verse 10. And just listen carefully to the words. It says, Then God said, uh, Behold, I am going to make a covenant. So he's speaking these words when he has replaced the, the, the uh, two tablets, the Ten Commandments. Because if you remember, he gave them to Moses, and Moses came down, saw the idolatry of the people, and smashed them to pieces, and then God called him back and replaced the Ten Commandments for him, uh, which, by the way, is one of the reasons that the book of Deuteronomy is called Deuteronomy, because it's a second law. It's a repeating of the law over again. And in Exodus 34.10, God says, Behold, I am going to make a covenant. This word covenant is very important here. Before all your people, I will, I will perform miracles which have not been produced, listen carefully to that, which have not been produced in all the earth, nor among any of the nations, and all the people among whom you live will see the working of the Lord. For it is a fearful thing that I am going to perform with you. Be sure to observe what I am commanding you this day. Behold, I am going to drive out the Amorite before you, and the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, all the people that lived in the land of Canaan before them. Watch yourself that you make no covenant. So we see the word covenant twice. God says, I will make a covenant with you, but you need to be careful that you do not make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, or it will become a snare in your midst. But rather, you are to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their asherim. For you shall not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. And then he goes on from there. You can read more of that in context. So there's a few things I want to explain to you before I talk about what this means for us today. And the first thing is this. We're going to be looking at examples from the Old Testament. Okay? And these examples, the New Testament tells us that these things were written as examples for us upon whom the ends of the ages have come. These are not things that just happened to them some time ago. We need to see our lives through the prism of what God did with them and what he spoke to them. Uh, it's not difficult for me to see the, what used to be called the manifest destiny of the United States and these things that are written. I know that not everybody that came to this uh, country, to this land, came here for religious freedom. There were a lot of reasons that, that people came here. But at the very core of the... Uh, of the Mayflower Compact, at the core of all these different covenants that were made, there was this idea of having religious freedom, this idea of having a place to live where we can worship God and live according to our conscience. And it's very easy, and all the, you know, the founding fathers and people before them saw themselves as going on an exodus. If you read anything they wrote, 
And you'll, you'll, you'll see this in what they were saying. It's easy for me to associate our nation today with the nation of Israel, to see this there uh, uh, in what we read, that God has performed miracles on this land which he's never performed uh, in any other nation of the earth, that nations of the world have stood in wonder and looked at the United States and said, what an amazing thing that God has done there. Just the other day, I met some people that I had never met before and um, really believe that God brought them into our lives and they came to the United States from another country not that long ago and they came to Yarrington uh, just a few months ago to live and uh, they were talking about how with all the, the troubles in America and all the problems that are going on here, the one thing that we just wonder at that we can't understand is why the, the, uh, 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 the economy of the United States of America is still the strongest in the world and that we enjoy such riches here in this country as compared to, to, other, to other countries. Well, I have news for you. That will not continue on forever because we are riding on the coattails of previous generations. And we see that with the, the nation of Israel. So God warns them in the beginning, do not make a covenant with the nations that live on the land before you, with the ones that I drove out of the land. In other words, do not make a covenant with their gods. Do not make a covenant with their demons. Do not make a covenant with their idols, or it will become a snare for you, and it will bring you down. Because God is no respecter of persons, the Bible tells us. And whatever judgment he put on those nations, he will put on you also if you walk in the same sin that they walked in. Jesus even said that it will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than it will be for you, Israel. Because they had no prophet. They didn't see the miracles that you saw. And so you will be judged more harshly because of the light that you had and you turned it into darkness and you rejected it. So that principle runs throughout Scripture that God is no respecter of persons. Then another thing I need to explain to you is there's a word here in verse 13. It says, cut down their asherim. So uh, I'm, I'm not going to take the time to go into detail about this, and some of the details are more perverse than I would even want to speak out in a sermon, but you can uh, just read through the scripture, and uh, you'll come across this word asherim or asherah. And uh, so what it is in, if you boil it down and just make it very basic, asherah is the wife of Baal. Okay, you know this God, Baal, it's throughout the, the Old Testament. So with the ancient peoples that lived on the land of Canaan and in Egypt and in other places, there was this idea of Asherah, that God has a wife. And this all has to do with creation. We'll see in just a minute how important this is. Our view of creation, how we understand creation, which, by the way, this whole UFO thing will lead into another deception, to, just like evolution, to reject God as our created creator, to reject God as our father, to reject the idea that perhaps God really does love us, like we sang about this morning, and he created us and only us in his own image, and there's no pride or hubris in thinking that because it's true, and rejecting the image of God that's on the inside of us. So, there is the truth of the scripture that God created us. He created each one of us in his likeness and in his image. And then there is the modern world that we live in that mirrors the, the cult of the Asherah, which is making God in our image. 
You understand? There's, there's a complete difference. Because if God has to have a wife to birth creation, then God's not God anymore, is he? He's just like us. So it's a complication and an obfuscation of who the creator is. And Satan always does this in many different forms with the purpose of keeping you away from God. Because if God is complicated, then I can't understand him. I can't know him. But the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is simple. Truth is always simple. And God is not difficult for us to approach or difficult for us to understand. He is not far from each one of us, Paul said to the Athenians who did not know God. He walked through, he saw all of their idols, and he found one that said to the unknown God, he latched onto that and said, I'm here to preach to you this unknown God that you do not know. And he is not far from each of us, that we can find him. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, so that we might know him and we might walk in, in uh, his light. So God, I, the other thing I want to draw your attention to is this. The violence of God. Okay? We don't like violence anymore. Violence is bad. Bullying is bad. Everything is bad. You know, manliness is bad. Courage is bad. All these kinds of things. And, but God is a violent God. Listen to what God says. He says, you are to tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, smash, and cut down their asherim. So, um, the idols that they made for the wife of God, for this complicated God that they had, uh, were wooden idols. And they stood as poles, and carved poles, kind of like totem poles, but they looked like a, like, like a woman. And some of them were, were quite uh, uh, graphic. And uh, it, the worship of this Asherim always had to do with temple prostitutes and sexual things and blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. I don't want to talk about, but our culture is just filled with it today, okay? And sometimes they would have entire groves of trees, living trees, that they put carvings on these living trees uh, for the Asherim. And this is what God is talking about. You go down and you chop down their entire Asherim. You chop down their entire grove. So we have an example. We're, I'm gonna, we're gonna look at a different example today uh, in King Josiah's life in just a little bit when we get to the hope part, okay? But we have an example in scripture of another man named Gideon. How many of you remember Gideon? So in Judges chapter six, when Gideon's revival begins, the first thing we see is that God tells him to do this very thing, to fulfill the scripture, to go chop down the groves of the Asherim to destroy the idols and smash them to pieces, literally smash them to pieces. And Gideon's too afraid. You know, Gideon is called by God a mighty man of valor, but that's God speaking over him. Gideon doesn't see himself as a mighty man of valor. And he's very afraid to do this, but he's not so afraid that he's going to disobey God. You know, one of the lines out of that movie, which hopefully you'll go see, is that when God speaks to you, you cannot hesitate. And Gideon knows that he has to take action. But he goes out at night while everybody's asleep because he, he's afraid of what's going to happen to him. And when everybody wakes up in the morning, well, it turns out that there's no internet anymore, that there's no uh, 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 Facebook anymore, that there's no whatever your idols may be today anymore. It's all gone. It doesn't work anymore. And, Gideon, and Gideon's dad gets up and he's furious and everybody's furious what happened. And Gideon's like, ooh. 
I don't know. <laughs> I guess somebody chopped it all down. Well, I want to say to you today, you might be afraid to destroy the idols. Um, and that's okay. As long as you destroy the idols. It doesn't matter whether you do it by night. It doesn't matter whether you do it by day. What matters is that revival begins with taking action on the part of the jealous God. God says, my name is jealous. He says that. One of the names of God is jealous. And he will not tolerate that in, uh, in, in a nation, in, in a people. And the church of the Lord Jesus Christ today in the United States, and I'm not going to say, oh, Yarrington Vineyard Fellowship, I, I think we're doing pretty good, but we've got plenty of idols to tear down. And one of the things that really touched me, I mean, to the point of just tears at the, um, I, I was crying the whole time during the uh, youth rally. I was supposed to be laughing, but I was crying. And um, uh, the, the, the very first service that, that they had, and the very first person that, that got up and, and preached, his name is, is Jason, and he was kind of the, the organizer for the whole thing. It all started with tearing down the idols and in, in your life. It all started with this kind of zeal to be done with the things of this world. And I knew right then, I'm at the right place, because this is exactly the pattern that God showed me from the Scripture. This is where everything starts. So God is a violent God. God is a jealous God. And he says to tear these things down, smash them to pieces, because the big question is, how many covenants do we have today? You can only have one covenant. You cannot serve God and mammon. If you serve God and mammon, if you have a covenant with, the, with this earth, a covenant with the demons and with the idols that were on this land before we ever came, the things that God drove out of our lives, the thing that God set us free from, if we go back to that like a dog goes back to its pile of vomit, and I didn't make that up, that's in the book of Proverbs, even if it's gross, then we don't have a covenant with God anymore. God says you can only have one covenant, and it's a covenant I make with you. So we are in covenant uh, with God. When we went to see uh, the movie Sound of Freedom, uh, and I'll say, if you go see that movie, please stay to the end. It says, at the end, when the credits are going up and down, it's going to say, special message, and then it'll have a countdown timer. Well, don't, don't give in to the temptation to not to stay to the end, <laughs> because Jim Caviezel has a, has a really special message at the end uh, of the movie. And one of the things that um, I realized, again, because I had realized this before, back when we had the ballot measure to remove or to outlaw prostitution in Lyon County, and never forget, our church lives in one of the few counties in the, in the world where prostitution is legal. And prostitution, the very meaning of the word in Greek, pornos, where we get pornography from and all these things, we talked about all this back then, comes from the idea of buying and selling slaves. Okay, it, It's an idea of slavery. That's how God sees it. It's slavery. And when you see this movie, you're just so impressed and it's so powerful. I'm not going to say touched because it's a kind of feeling that you can't describe as being touched to understand that more people live in slavery today in the United States of America than lived in slavery during when slavery was legal. More people. And most of them are children who are being used as sex slaves. And it all has to do with, uh, it's all tied in with the pornography business, with all these things that that I'm not going to go into, but, but such a powerful movie. 
And you, you realize that, and you think, is God a respecter of persons? Will he allow things just to keep going the way they're going? While we hallelujah and amen and pretend like everything's okay and lie to ourselves about what's really happening in our nation. Also, right before we went on this trip, uh, you know, I have a whole lot of books in my office that almost all of them are not from me. They were here when I came. And uh, some of them are from Gene Chisholm, from the Gene Chisholm era, from way back. And I'm just sitting there and I'm looking up at, that, at those books and one of them jumps out of me, so I pick up and I gra- grab it out of, the, out of the bookshelf. And it's a book I'd read many times, or not many times, that's not true. I've read at least twice. Uh, but I, it's a really easy to read book. You can still get it. And, but I read it when I was in high school. And it was written by a British uh, evangelist by the name of Leonard Ravenhill. And the, the title of the book is Why Revival Tarries. Why we don't have revival today. Why it's taking so long. And I was thinking on that. So when I saw it, I thought, I'm going to pull that out and read it. And I started reading it, skimming through it, and then took it home so I could finish reading it. And one of the phrases that jumped out at me, and I had to look, what year was this uh, copyrighted? What year was this published? And this was already the second edition. I think it came out in the late 50s. But this one came out in 1960. So four years before I was born into what I always thought was a Christian nation, Leonard Ravenhill, in a very widespread, well-read book, millions and millions of people have read this book, and uh, wrote this phrase, that people say that America will fall. And I tell you today that America will never fall because America has already fallen. For the scripture says in uh, Revelation chapter 18, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And I'm like, what? He wrote that four years before I was even born. And then he gives a little list of things that are going on in America that cause us to realize that it's the last days and that uh, we live in a fallen nation and we need revival before Jesus comes back. And why revival is tarry, why we don't have revival. Number one reason he puts forth in the book is because we don't pray, and we don't. <laughs> yeah, we do this little symbolic prayer stuff, but we don't really pray. Uh, another reason is the, the uh, truth of the gospel is not being preached from pulpits, and it's not. And he goes through this whole whole thing. But that, that phrase just stuck with me, just jumped out at me, just, just grabbed me. That he, would, he could write that in 1960. And then when I read the list of things, I was like, oh, that's, that's kindergarten stuff compared to what we have today. I can't even remember what was on the list. But it was like, oh, that's baby stuff. The things that are going on today are way, way beyond anything like, like that. But just for example, yesterday, I saw on the news, it was the big news, a big news article, and it looked interesting. Well, what's that about? So I pushed the button and read the article. So the number one Christian album on iTunes, at least yesterday, you know that stuff changes all the time. Number one Christian album on iTunes, I can't even remember the guy's name, but his, the album is produced by, uh, anybody remember, well, I won't go into names, but there's a, a, a Christian writer who's written the songs for him, Christian writer who's written the songs for this person, and this person for 20 years was a worship leader in church, and now he's a transvestite uh, drag queen Christian singer, 
And this is the number one album on, I mean, it sounds ridiculous that I would ever even say something like that in church. It's like, you just want to laugh. That's not even possible. But it's the number one album out there, at least yesterday, on iTunes. And I'm thinking, that's not, what we call Christian isn't Christian anymore. You know, somebody asked me the other day, well, what is a vineyard church? And I said, just to be honest, the name vineyard's just a name. You know, Baptist is a name, Methodist is a name, Luther. You have to go to that particular church. Just because it has a certain name out there on the, on the sign doesn't mean what's on the inside is what you necessarily think it is. Because everything depends on that local church, those people that, that are right there. But what we are calling Christian today, it's not Christian anymore, okay? And so, because to be Christian means to be like Christ. So we live in a nation today where our young people are being indoctrinated with lies and with deception, and the old people are all sound asleep and snoring while it's going on. Uh, all of this is happening in the nation that we live in, and I don't even need to detail all the things. Well, every Sunday morning before church starts here, almost every Sunday morning, I listen to the beginning of Kevin McMullen's sermon in Independence, Missouri, and then I try to go back and listen to the rest later. If you never listened to Kevin McMullen, you ought to listen to him. He's got really powerful messages. It's Independence Christian Center. You can find it online. And uh, you remember when he, when he came here. But very powerful messages. And he started his message out this morning, and I, I'm, I, I know he was talking about Stephen, my son, sitting right there, but he didn't say Stephen's name. He said, but he really honored Stephen because he said, I have a very good friend. And I was like, I wonder who his good friend is. And then he said, a very good friend who, can you believe it? He's moving from the United States back to Russia. And he said, and one of the big reasons he's moving back to Russia is because he has young children. And he wants to raise them in a country where they can actually get a good education where having a sex change operation is a federal offense, it's against the law, and where and he goes on through this whole list that they can be raised in a moral nation. And then he says, can you believe it? It used to be people moved from other countries to come to America for that reason. Now people move away from America so they can raise their children where there's a moral atmosphere for their children. That is the country that we live in today. So in Revelation 18, and like I always say, things will get worse before they get better, because they'll get better when Jesus comes back. But remember, the message is about hope. <laughs> and you'll hear that at the end of Sound of Freedom also. Revelation 18, Revelation 18. There are two voices from heaven that speak in Revelation 18. The first one says this, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And instead of saying, oh, that's some other country, let's just try to apply the word of God to us and be honest with ourselves. It says, and the voice continues to say, she has become, in other words, she wasn't in the beginning, but she has become a dwelling place of demons. The word dwelling place means a settlement or a colony in the Greek. She has, become, she has been colonized by demons. And a prison, and that word can mean a haunt, but I like the word prison, a prison of every unclean spirit. I like that word because, well, I've never been in prison, but I've watched a lot of prison movies. I don't want to go to prison because I've watched prison movies. And when I was a teenager, I watched a show called Scared Straight. Has anybody ever seen that? 
And it scared me straight. I don't want to go to prison. Because that is a prison of every unclean spirit. I don't want those things to happen to me. I mean, I, I don't want to sit in, in a jail cell, period. But definitely don't want to go to prison. But, it, but the voice says from heaven that, that Babylon, this country, has become a prison of every unclean spirit. There, there, there's no way out. You're trapped inside of this. And a prison of every unclean bird, and if you, you might have it different in your translation, but if you take it literally from the Greek, it goes on to say, and a prison of every unclean and hated beast. Now, I like pork, okay? But these are Jews writing this and writing it for Jews. So it's a prison overrun with wild pigs, okay? And then it says, for why? Why has this happened? For all the, it has to do with money. You can't serve God and mammon. For all the nations have fallen into a drunken stupor, that's what it says literally, from the wine of the wrath of her immorality. It's the Greek word pornea. And the kings of the earth have trafficked in prostitution, it says literally, with her. And the merchants of the earth have become rich by the power, by the power of her unbridled sensuality. Because she never says enough. She never says, let's stop with that. That's too much. She never says, man should not do this, should not go beyond this line. She always says, more, more, more. I have to have more. You know, there was a moment in time in history, because I remember this moment, when the Supreme Court was dealing with issues of, should the internet be regulated? And the decision became, no, we need freedom of speech, so it should not be regulated. We need to have more, and yet it is regulated. And how is it regulated? Well, if you take a stand for Jesus, if you take a stand for truth, you're going to get banned. You're going to get booted out of there. There's things that you can't say on YouTube. There's things you can't talk about. You can't even discuss them anymore. But when it comes to pornography, do whatever you want to do. So it's regulated, but it's regulated for the devil's side, not for God's side. And, and, and so there's just this unbridled sensuality. And all the merchants of the earth, they know that. And look at the America we live in today. How many of you remember going to Walmart and everything said made in America? Yeah. If you go to Walmart, it's only made in America. And what do we make in America today? Well, don't be afraid to say nothing because it's true. I mean, yeah, there's a few little select things, but we don't make things in America today. We've become a nation whose unbridled sensuality is exploited by all the merchants of the earth. And they make money off of us. And I'm not going to talk bad about China or anybody else, but, but we complain about China. Oh, China. China's our biggest enemy and everything. But China is today what China is today because of our own unbridled sensuality as a nation. Because we don't want to work anymore. We don't want to make anything anymore. We just want to sit there like the movie Wall-E and look at our little... We can't even read books anymore. I mean, I'm just being honest with you. Our education system is probably the lowest in the earth. I don't know the stats, but everybody knows how low it is. And you have to work really hard and probably pay a lot of money to try to get good education for your children, for your grandchildren. In verse 13 of that very chapter, verse 18, there's a, there's a list of the, uh, of the merchandise that's being trafficked in with Babylon. And in verse 13, at the end of the list, it says, cargoes of the bodies and souls of men. Slavery. 
I remember reading that verse when I was young and thinking, that's not ever going to happen. Slavery's been outlawed all over the earth. Not understanding what's really going on in the world. But now that I'm old, uh, you know, I wasn't shocked by Sound of Freedom uh, because I know that that stuff's true. I was just impacted very powerfully to see it per portrayed before my eyes and reminded of that. But she deals in the cargo of the bodies and the souls of men. I heard someone not that long ago, somebody was on a, uh, a video that Shalene actually shared with me, and the woman who was talking said, made a statement that, boy, it was right on. She said, if they've come for the minds of your children, then don't be surprised when they come for the bodies of your children also. If they've stolen their minds, they will steal their bodies also. And that's what Satan is all about today. But that's not the only voice in Revelation 18. There's a second voice that speaks. And the second voice says very plainly, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. It's the same thing that's said in Exodus 34. You, people of God, have a covenant with God. So do not make a covenant with the people of this earth. Do not make a covenant with the gods, with the demons, with the idols of the nations that live upon this land. There are, and we'll see this in a minute with Manasseh, but there are ancient demons, ancient gods, ancient wickedness that is actively being conjured up today by people who are in power and people who are in government on this land. And God warned them about that very thing. And so he says, come out of her, my people, and then you will be blessed. Well, how do you come out of a nation? Well, you, you might actually move away from a country. But obviously not everybody can do that. And eventually you're going to run into Babylon all over the world because the Bible shows us that. So coming out obviously means more than just moving away from something, especially when that voice goes on to say, I want you to give her back in the same measure that she's given to you. I want you to violently attack her. Now, I'm not talking about having an armed insurrection today, okay? In case somebody on YouTube thinks I am. I don't know. Just kick me off of YouTube anyway. I don't care. But, but what I'm talking about is the violence of God. You know, the, 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 the kingdom of God is advancing, Jesus said. And the violent, they are taking this kingdom by force. They are moving forward. If you're going to live the life of a Christian, it's going to involve extreme violence in the sense that you're going to have to take a stand for God. And, it, and the violence is going to be directed first and foremost toward your own inner world and your own inner heart. Things that you need to pull out, things that you need to throw away, things that have to change for us to continue to follow God. Philosophies that you have to reject because they, they're not according to the Bible. And so, he says that you have to come out of her. Well, there's a scripture in 1 John chapter 5 that I think has a lot to do with how we come out. And we'll see this in the life of Josiah in a minute. In 1 John chapter 5, beginning with verse 18, and I have to read this from the King James Version, because it's actually, of all the ones I've seen, the best translation of what's said here. So, get ready for these and thous. 1 John 5.18 says, we know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. But he that is begotten of God keepeth himself. One of the common themes that kept running through this entire youth rally was keeping your own heart because out of it flow the issues or the direction of your own life. 
He who is born of God keeps himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. I love that scripture. That means Satan does not even touch me. I mean, can you believe that? Can you say that over your life? That Satan has no place in me. Jesus said that Satan is coming, the wicked one is coming before he went to the cross, but he has nothing in me. He has no hold in me. There's nothing that he can latch on to in me. I've lived a life and living a life of no compromise. And John presents that in the simplicity that only John has as being the normal Christian life. When it says sinneth not, that doesn't mean that you've never committed a sin or never make a mistake. Read the entire book of 1 John. It says that if we, if we say we have no sin, then we make God out to be a liar and that we need to confess our sin and he's faithful and just uh, to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But when it says sinneth not, it means that you don't live a life of sin. You don't live a life of completely, constantly missing the mark. And when you do fail, you ask God to forgive you. You're just honest with yourself about it. You confess that to God. He gets you back up and you keep going. But if you're serving God, you're not missing out on what God has for you in life. You're not going to miss the mark. You're not living a life of sin. Sometimes we feel like, boy, I've really missed out on this. Uh, you know, maybe I should have gone a different route 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Why did I study that in college? That's turned out to be completely useless. Or why did I do this? Or why did I do that? Or why did I marry this person? Why did I marry that person? Paul said, I forget the things that are behind me. You can't live your life with a bunch of regrets. You know, even if you did make mistakes, what difference does it make now? Where are you today? Confess over your life that I sinneth not. I do not sin. That I keep myself, I guard myself, and that the wicked one touches him not. You can live in the midst of this world, but you are not of this world. Jesus said that. You are in the world, but you are not of this world. So coming out of Babylon, uh, it, it could mean for somebody, I mean, I know people have moved out of California because God told them, get out of California. It could mean a physical move. I'm not saying it doesn't. But it, the physical move is worthless if you carry Babylon on the inside of you. You know, they left Egypt and they carried Egypt in their hearts. And they never did get into the promised land. They have to be that generation of Joshua, that generation of Caleb, that we reject Egypt and we embrace what God has for us in the promised land. So he says, the wicked one touches them, toucheth him not. And we know that we are of God. Do you know that this morning? Well, if you don't, you need to start knowing it. We know that we are of God and the whole world lieth in wickedness. Do you know that this morning? Well, if you think there's something good waiting for you out there, I have news for you. The whole world lieth in wickedness. Okay? <laughs> That's what John says. And we know, so there's the other thing we know. We know that we are of God. We know the whole world lieth in wickedness. We know that whoever is born of God sinneth not. And he keeps going with the nose. He says, we know that the Son of God is come and hath given us an understanding or a mind to think that we may know him that is true and we are in him that is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. And it ends with this, little children, keep yourself from idols. Amen. Keep yourself from idols and you will not walk in sin. If you make a covenant with the people of this world, then you've unequally yoked yourself. And you'll be, you, no matter how much you want to walk in righteousness, 
that big fat ox that's in wickedness is going to pull to the left and you're going to miss the mark. Get unyoked from the covenants of this world and walk in the covenant that the Lord has given you. So let's go to 2 Kings chapter 20. 2 Kings chapter 20. And I got to hurt. 2 Kings chapter 20. There's a king by the name of Hezekiah. If you'll read the whole context of his life, you'll see that he is the king of Judah. He is a good and he's a righteous king. Israel has been divided into two nations already for hundreds of years after Solomon. There are the northern tribes, the ten northern tribes that are centered around Samaria. Samaria is the capital of uh, the north, and so we can call that Samaria. Uh, Jerusalem is the capital of the south. That's Judah and Benjamin, uh, if you make it simple. And Jerusalem is the capital there, so it is Jerusalem. So Hezekiah is the king of Jerusalem. He is the king of Judah. At this time, when we read what we're going to be reading, the ten northern tribes have already been conquered by Assyria, and their kingdom has already been wiped off the face of the map. Okay? And this has happened because they have disobeyed God, and God even says that I've divorced them, that I've put them away. That is no longer my wife. And he allows and commands Assyria to take this over. We know that Babylon's going to do the same to Judah, that this is going to come. But for now, it hasn't happened yet. And in Judah, they feel like everything's hunky-dory, everything's going to be okay. And Hezekiah is, by and large, a good king. Okay? Hezekiah is the one that Isaiah the prophet comes to and tells him, put your house in order because you're going to die this day. And Hezekiah is honest with himself and confesses his sin and weeps, turns his face to the wall and weeps. And before Isaiah even gets out of the court of the king's castle, of the king's home. The Lord says to him, you go back and tell him I gave him 15 more years. God relents in his punishment. God staves off the punishment to a future day and blesses Hezekiah because of this. We'll look at verse 17 of chapter 20. So he's being warned about the uh, judgment that's coming on the nation, on Judah. And verse 16, it says, Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be, will be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Some of your sons who shall issue from you, whom you will beget, will be taken away, and they will become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. Think Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. All of this came true. But look at verse 19, because it's pretty sad. Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he thought, or he said to himself, is it not so if there will be peace and truth in my days? This is a very dangerous place that we're at as a country, as older people, that we find ourselves. Well, all this stuff may be happening and it may come, but the only important thing for me is to enjoy my retirement and then I'll go to heaven. It'll all happen when I'm not here. Or I'm just going to get raptured out and none of this stuff will happen to me. Everything's going to be great as long as there's peace and prosperity in my day. And so we've lived like that for generations and we've birthed our children into a nation that has debt beyond what you can even imagine. You can't even count that high. It's impossible to even think of that. So we, it's like the atomic bomb. We just close our eyes to that atomic bomb of debt. And just pretend like it's not there because it's beyond the human mind to even think of numbers that high. And we, we pass on this debt from generation to generation. 
But everybody knows, because everybody has their own household budget, that if you run up your credit cards, eventually there's going to be a payday. And you're going to pay for what you've done. But as long as I don't have to pay, let my children pay for that. Let my grandchildren pay for that. Let someone else. That's what Hezekiah says. He says, the word of the Lord is good because it's not going to happen to me. <laughs> It'll happen to my kids and grandkids, but not to me. That's a, not a helpful attitude for us old people to have in relationship to our young people. So look at chapter 21. We're going to read some verses about Manasseh here. We'll read through them real quickly. So Hezekiah has a son. And his son Manasseh becomes king when he's 12 years old. It says Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. That's a very long reign. And his mother's name was Hephzibah. And I'll tell you right away that Manasseh is considered the absolute worst of all the kings of Judah and all the kings of Israel. Nobody was more evil or wicked than Manasseh. I have to ask myself, this question, how could he be raised with a relatively good and righteous father that becomes so evil? Perhaps because his father's idea was always, I don't care what happens to my kids, as long as there's peace and prosperity in my day. I don't know. So in verse 2 it says, Manasseh did evil in the sight of the Lord. According, and how, what kind of evil did he did? Pay attention. Remember Exodus 34, about the two covenants. He did according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. Real quick, high places, what are they? What they are are places throughout the kingdom where you can worship God however you want to worship God and you don't have to come to Jerusalem and you can worship whatever God you want to worship. Okay? They're... Uh, religious freedom that is actually religious slavery. It's a confusion of God. It's a confusion of His Word. Everybody has their own translation. Everybody has their own idea. Everybody can follow their own truth. How many times have you heard this phrase, well, that's your truth, but I have my truth. That, that doesn't exist. That's not real. There can only be one truth. You can have your point of view. I can have my point of view. But at the end of the day, if we're hungry and following after truth, we truly are, we're going to come to the same point because there's only one truth. So high places is, divides the people of God. It's what's called in the Greek heresy. Okay? And the point, Satan's reason for heresy is divide and conquer. When God's people are divided, God's people are conquered already. So he rebuilds these high places. Then it says, he erected altars for Baal and he made an Asherah. So he brought back the false god and the false god's wife. He brought all this stuff back that God had driven out of the land of Canaan, knowing that this is the reason why God destroyed them, the land of Canaan. God, if you remember those stories, and they're hard to read sometimes with our modern mind, but God requires them to kill every man, woman, child, and every beast of these nations that they conquered when Joshua goes into the land. And he says, you don't hold anything back from them. It has to be wiped out completely. And Manasseh just brings it all back in a day. You know, it, it, it doesn't take long to just bring it all back, does it? So he brings it all back. And he does as Ahab, that's the Jezebel husband guy. That's the worst king before Manasseh. He's worse. 
He does as Ahab, king of Israel, had done and worshipped all the host of heaven, all the demons, and he served them. He served Satan. He served the false gods. He built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. For he built altars for all the hosts of heaven. So he has an altar for this demon, an altar for that demon. Now, I don't know what names were written on all these altars. But it was like what Paul saw in Athens, only it's in the house of God. It's in the church. And it says, he went beyond that. He built them in the two courts of the house of the Lord. So one court is for the priests. This is the holy place and the holy of holies. And he went into the holy place and he put altars to demons inside of the holy place. So he corrupted the priesthood. But not only that, he put the altars on the outside where the people come. So that he corrupted the people also. He corrupted the entire church. He corrupted the entire house of God with demons and defiled it before God. Very evil. But then that's not all. It says he made his son pass through the fire. And this was a practice that not only he did, but he taught the people to do it. Pass them through the fire. Uh, that means that they offered them up to Molech. And this had God had forbidden they offered their children to Molech. God had already told them not to do that. Leviticus 18.21 says, You shall not, way back, before they even go into the land, God tells them, You shall not give any of your seed to pass over to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Well, again, I'm not going to go into all the details of what Molech was during the time of Manasseh. You can find a lot of this stuff in the internet and places like that. But this is the truth. They actually constructed a mechanical idol, and it was an idol to the god Molech. And it had arms that came out like this, and it had a fire that burned on the inside of him. And they would take a living baby and put it in the arm, the firstborn son, put it into the arms of this idol, and the arms would burn that baby alive, and then it would be brought in and burned alive into the bosom of Molech and be burned alive in the fire. How could they ever get to that place? How could we get to the place where we abort our children? How could we get to the place where we are what we are today? You know, it's, there's no reason to ask how this could ever happen. It's easy to see how it happens. When you turn your back on God, then God gives you over to a depraved mind, as it says in Romans chapter 1. Romans 1 says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. You begin to make a false god. He's got a wife. You can call it evolution. You can call it whatever you want to call it. But you reject God as the creator. You make God in your own image instead of realizing that we are made in the image of God. He is blessed forever. And it says, therefore God gives them over to impurity, to degrading passions, and to a depraved mind. God makes people stupid because they can't understand even that he created them. Do you know why we're so smart and intelligent? I, one of the phrases I loved at this youth rally is if you let the Holy, the Holy Spirit is a genius, if you let him move through your life, people will actually think you're smart. Well, the truth is that the intelligence we have comes from God. I mean, all God has to do is just lift his finger off and we go nuts, we go crazy. We, we, you know, we, we've never had such an epidemic of mental disease 
like we have, have today. Why would anybody ever think in their life that they want to kill themselves? It makes absolutely no logical sense whatsoever. Suicide is the craziest, stupidest idea that's ever been. And yet, and I love this also at the youth rally, that they dealt with freedom from the spirit of suicide. And yet our teenagers today are suffering underneath this, 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 this burden that Satan has put on them that there's no way out, that there's no hope, that I might as well kill myself. We've seen it in Yarrington. We've seen it in other places. It's around the world today. It's a lie. It's a deception from Satan. But it says that God gives them over to a depraved mind. So we see that this happened with Manasseh. He made his son pass through the fire, but that's not all. It says he practiced witchcraft. He used divination. He dealt with mediums and spiritists. He was involved in what's called necromancy. He spoke with the dead, or so he thought. He's actually speaking with demons. And he's conjuring, this is real people. He's conjuring up the demons that used to live on this land that were driven out by God. He's inviting them all back. He's bringing them all back. That's the world that we live in today in the United States of America. This is all what happened with Manasseh. So it goes on to say, he did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. You don't want to provoke God. Then he set the carved image of Asherah that he had made in the house of which the Lord said to David and to his son Solomon, I can't even go into the details of how perverse this was, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not make the feet of Israel wander anymore from the land which I gave their fathers, if only they will observe to do according to all that I have commanded them, and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. In other words, if only they will keep my covenant. And I'm telling you, in the New Testament, this is way simpler than it was even in the Old Testament. If only you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. And if only you would love your neighbor as yourself. If you'll only keep my commandments, he says. But, verse 9 tells us, they did not listen. And Manasseh seduced them. Remember we talked about deception. Manasseh, the government... The king seduced the people to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. They became so bad, they were worse than the nations that God had kicked off the land. And one of the big reasons that God gives in the Scripture for why they had to be 70 years, the main reason why the period of time in Babylon was 70 years, because for 490 years they had defiled His Sabbaths. And he said, the land is going to get its rest. The country is going to be blessed anyway. I made this country, and I will bless this country, but to do that, I'm going to have to take you out of here, and then I'll be able to bring you back once I've cleansed the land. So they became worse than the nations that had been there before them. And this happened because Manasseh seduced them. Why was it so easy for Manasseh to seduce them? Well, because they had forgotten the word of God. They become completely illiterate in the Bible, and they had forgotten that the Bible even exists. There was a prophet by the name of Amos, and he had warned of these very things. He was actually the first prophet whose prophecies are written down in Scripture in the books of the prophets. He was before Isaiah. 
And Amos had been a shepherd and a gatherer of figs, a fig farmer and a shepherd. And God, he wasn't even a prophet. And God called him and said, go to Israel, go to the northern tribes. This was before Assyria had conquered them. And he goes and he preaches that, that days are coming very soon when judgment is coming. And they hated him and they persecuted him. And he said these words by the Holy Spirit in chapter 8, verse 11. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. And he said people will have to get up and they'll have to go to other cities. They'll have to go far away just to hear good preaching, just to be in an atmosphere of worship where it's worship in spirit and in truth because it will be such a rare thing that, that nobody will be able to find the words of the Lord. That's America today. And in that country where we live today, there will pro proliferate false prophets, people that tell lies, people that delude, and the government will seduce people so that they do more evil than was ever done on the face of the earth before them. That's where we live today. And that's what was happening with Manasseh. Well, I have some good news for you. Good news and bad news. First, the good news. The good news is, in chapter 33 of 2 Chronicles, and I'm not going to open it because of time, but in chapter 33 of 2 Chronicles, you, your homework, go read verses 10 through 20. You'll find out that this very Manasseh, the most evil king that ever lived in Israel or in Judah, he gets taken away to Babylon in captivity. He's put in chains and irons and fetters, and he goes to Babylon, and miracle of miracles, he repents. <laughs> and he cries out to God, and he remembers the lessons of his childhood. There is still hope. And he repents before God. And God releases him from captivity, and he goes back to Judah, where he implements reforms that are kind of a pseudo-revival or the beginning of revival. Something good happens with Manasseh. So then go to 2 Kings chapter 21, where you already were, and look at verse 10. Verse 10. So in verse 10 it says, Now the Lord spoke through his servants the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, having done wickedly more than all the Amorites did who were before him, and has also made Judah sin with his idols. They're his idols, but Judah sins with them. They're the government's idols, but Judah is deceived. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such calamity on Jerusalem and Judah, that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. Does that remind you of what he said in Exodus 34? In Exodus 34, he said, I'm going to do miracles that are going to make the world astounded with what's happening. Now he says, I'm going to bring such calamity on you that the ears of everyone who hears about it will tingle. The whole earth will be astounded at the calamity that I've brought on you. He says, I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plummet. The plummet is a plumb bob, you know, a plumb line. Anybody remember that kind of carpentry before all the laser stuff? He says, I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab. And he says, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. They didn't have dishwashers back then, but God likes clean dishes. We, we know, we know a, a lady, she's passed away now, but I, I remember one, 
when I found out that she washed her dishes twice, you know, washed them with a special kind, it'd be like washing with Dawn to get them all clean, drying them, and then putting them in the dishwasher and washing them again to make them extra clean, okay? So that's, you know, when you read the law, God's got those kind of rules. So he, he's saying, you know, the way somebody wipes a dish clean, completely clean, so there's no germ left on that dish, that's what I'm going to do to Judah. I'm going to wipe this place clean. And it happened. The temple was destroyed. The city was destroyed. They were completely evacuated to, to Babylon before God brought them back. But notice the reason why God says he's going to do that. He says, I'm going to do that because I sent Amos and I held the plumb line at Samaria. And I saw that their house was crooked. You know, a plumb line shows you what's level, right? And I, I, I've got a level and I see that your house is crooked. So it's going to fall down anyway, so I'm going to go ahead and knock it down and cleanse the land of this wickedness that you've built. And then God comes to Judah and he says, am I supposed to have a different plumb line for you than I have for them? I mean, if you're going to go buy a level at the store, aren't they all the same? Isn't level level? You know, Pete loves level. I've done some projects with him. I want to say, if you want something level... Pete will get it level for you, okay? And sometimes he's so, when we were doing some of the, these projects and we're doing some more in the office here, he so loves level. I'm like, come on, man, that bubble's already in the, ooh, that bubble just right in the middle. Well, I think that's how God is. He wants the bubble right in the middle in our lives and he doesn't rest until he gets it to that place where we're walking in the fullness of the blessings he has for us. He wants that for us because if it's out of level today, it might be fine for 10 years, but it's gonna crumble. It's, it's going to fall apart. And he wants us on the right track. He wants us in the right place. So he says, I'm holding this same level over you that I held for Samaria. I am no respecter of persons. And should not America hear that today? That if God would judge Judah in that way and judge Jerusalem in that way, how much more so would he judge Washington in that way? Or judge our country in that way? And he says, I will abandon the remnant of my inheritance. And I will deliver them into the hand of their enemies. And they will become as a plunder and spoil to all their enemies because they have done evil in my sight. And they have been provoking me to anger since the day their fathers came from Egypt, even to this day. And moreover, Manasseh has shed very much innocent blood until he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. Besides his sin, which he did when he made Judah sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Then it says, now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did and his sin which he committed, are they not written in the books of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? So in other words, you can go in Chronicles, you can read about his repentance, you can read about his little revival, you can read about his salvation. Because I believe with all my heart, when we get to the kingdom of God, when we're in heaven, we're going to see Manasseh there. I know that Manasseh today is in the presence of the Lord. I know that he was saved because I can read about it in Second Chronicles. But in 2 Kings, God wants us to know and to understand that there's a difference between personal forgiveness and national forgiveness. That God says, I will forgive the sin of the person Manasseh, and I will bring revival, and he brings it in the days of his son Josiah. But I will still judge the land for the innocent blood that has been shed. As Jesus said, that it will be more tolerant for Sodom and Gomorrah in that day because they did not know and had not seen what you saw. If we can start just by being honest with ourselves, if we can hold the line of Samaria and the plumb bob of the house of Ahab and Jezebel over our own country and see that we are completely out of whack, 
then we can begin to truly have revival. So I want to end this morning with two chapters out of the Bible that I'm not going to read. They're your homework. It's 2 Chronicles chapter 34 and 35. And I'm going a little bit long this morning. Sorry about that. But there's no way for me to tell you what I'm going to tell you now without building it up with what I built it up with. 2 Chronicles chapter 34 and verse 35. Uh, not verse 35. Chapter 34 and chapter 35. They tell us the story of a king named Josiah. And this is the hope for our country today. And I saw this and was convinced of this when we were at this youth rally. We read about the revival of Josiah. You know, when Sasha was a little girl, and I was teaching Book of Revelation, I always got these things, I'm looking at this stuff. I said, as best as I can understand this, I think you were born into the last generation. I think Jesus is coming back really soon. And, and I still think that. <laughs> I don't know when, but I really believe that this generation of teenagers and the children and teenagers that we have today in our, in our church, listen to this, they are the absolute last hope for our country. And if our attitude is going to be, well, we have peace and prosperity, it doesn't matter what happens to them, then it's, it's never going to happen. So Josiah is born, and Manasseh dies, and we see in the life of Josiah the principle of James 2.13 that mercy triumphs over judgment. And there is a great revival amongst the youth. And I believe that we can see that revival today. In fact, I would go so far as to say the only reason I haven't moved my family back to Russia is because I know that God wants to see revival in Yarrington. That God wants to see victory here. Okay? I'm being honest with you. The revival of Josiah. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So Josiah is born, and when he's eight years old, he becomes king. I'm going to give you a rundown of what you'll read there real quick. When a person becomes king when they're eight years old, they don't control anything. Study history. Eight-year-old kings are puppet kings. They're made to do what the adults in the room want them to do. And Josiah rebels. He rebels for Jesus. We need a Jesus rebellion today in our young people. Because we have given birth to them in a world of idolatry that they did not create. We made this world of perversity and of sin. From the time they're born, we put into their hands some kind of piece of glass that they can look into the internet with. We don't control anything. We try to control it. We can't control it because the internet's beyond control. And the only thing that's ever going to really change things in their own personal lives is when there's a rebellion against the idolatry that we've made. I would love to see, I mean, I, it's not going to happen, I know that, but I would literally not get mad if I woke up in the morning and the internet was completely shut down all over this entire valley, all over Nevada, and it happens because some kids went out there and dug up the cables and ruined them. <laughs> Every time that happens that the internet's off, at first I'm like, oh, what am I going to do without internet? And then I'm like, man, I got books here, I can read a book. I can talk to a person again. We can actually live without this. It's possible to live without our idols anymore. You know, so there's a rebellion that happens in the young generation. So he's eight years old when he's king, and then you'll read there that when he's 16 years old, the Bible says, and I quote, while he was still a youth, he began to seek the God of his father David. 
How did he do that? By reading the Bible? No, he didn't even have a Bible. We'll see that in a minute. It began because of what the Holy Spirit was doing on the inside of him. It began because he was fed up with the idolatry. He hated the wickedness that was around him. It, 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 it stunk in his nostrils. And he was rebelling against that, but he could, like every teenager, there was rebellion. But he couldn't find what he's supposed to rebel about. And then he's like, man, I want to know the God of my father, David. They've told me stories about this great King David, about this Goliath, about all this glory, about all this stuff. And I have none of that in my life. Our kingdom is a vassal state to Babylon. My dad was in in prison in Babylon. My grandfather was a righteous king, but he was kind of weak and wavering all the time. I want to be like David, a man after God's own heart. That's all he had. So he begins to seek God when he's 16 years old. This is the number one thing. I'm going to just give him to his points. A zeal to know God. And instead of the word zeal, I could use the more common modern word is he has a passion to know God. A passion to know God. First time in our teenagers. I'm not saying it wasn't there before, but I saw, Shalene can tell you, we saw, you saw last Sunday, There is a passion to know God in our teenagers today. You need to see that. That's the beginning. The next thing is when he's 20 years old, he completely rejects the idolatry and the perversions that that he had been born into of the generation of his father. It says, He began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim, the carved images, and the molten images. He does exactly what Exodus 34 told them to do. And he doesn't even read Exodus 34. He doesn't even have a Bible yet. He just says, I'm getting rid-. And he can do it by day because he's a king. Okay? But if you need to do it by night, it's okay to do it by night. But he completely purges everything. He goes through Judah and Jerusalem, gets rid of all the high places. Purge means he chops them down, he smashes them to pieces, he pours gas on them and sets them on fire. He gets rid of them. He destroys the ashram, the carved images and the molten images. And then it says, they tore down the altars of the Baals. And you have to notice in here that it goes from he to they. Because revival never starts with a group. Revival starts with a person. And it began in the heart of Josiah. And it can begin in the heart of those nine kids that went on this trip. It can begin in the heart of one of those kids that went on this trip. But it begins in the heart of one, and just like always with teenagers, all of a sudden it's cool to follow Jesus. And they get excited about that. And they say, hey, we like burning down idols too. And they join in Josiah's group, and they're going around, and they go so far, if you'll read it there, they go all the way to the very north of Israel. Remember, Israel is under captivity by Assyria. It's a foreign country already. They don't care. God said, that's our land. We're taking it back. And they go take back the land that God's given them, and they destroy all the idols everywhere. So revival's happening. It spreads to Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, even as far as Naphtali, it says, and in all the surrounding ruins. They go into the ruined cities, and they rebuild them for the glory of God. And it says, then they go back to Jerusalem. The number three thing you'll see there is he has a passion or a zeal for God's house. It was said of Jesus after he cleansed the temple when he expressed the violence of the God who is jealous. Remember, Jesus actually physically drove those things out of the house of God. And the disciples remembered, oh yes, that's what it says in the Psalms, that a zeal for the house of God has consumed me. Jesus said, this house must be a house of prayer for all people. This house has to be a place where anybody walks in here. 
no matter what the color of their skin is, no matter what country they're from, no matter what language they speak, but they walk in here, they encounter Jesus, that it's a house of prayer for all people. So he's 26 years old. 26, that's pretty young. He's been seeking God for 10 years. He's come to know God. He has this zeal for God's house. And what do they do? They have a youth revival of offerings. All the young people start giving offerings. And they collect so much money. They go around everywhere. I mean, they're probably twisting the old people's arms. You know, it's one of those youth fundraisers. We're going to rebuild God's house. And the parents are like, eh, wait, I don't know about come on, mom and dad, can't you give? I'm giving. And they collect money everywhere. The young people do this. The 20-somethings. The teenagers. And, they, and then they bring all the money and they do it exactly according to God's order. When you read this, it's so beautiful. They bring it in and they say, we're giving this to the Levites, to the church workers. And then the Levites give it to the high priest. And the high priest is this old man. And he's like overcome by this spirit of revival. And it says the high priest, he doesn't even pilfer it. He doesn't even steal out of it. And they were doing that all the time at this time. Read Malachi. They were doing this already. <laughs> but he, that, but they, he doesn't. It says that he takes all that money and he hires skilled artisans and carpenters and they rebuild the house of God. They make it beautiful. Okay? And very interesting. The supervisors of all the work of the carpentry and, and, and all the work they're doing in there are not themselves builders. The praise and worship leaders, for whatever reasons, are the supervisors. I think it's because they're building a house of prayer for all nations. And they know this has to be a place that welcomes and receives people to know God. So they have a zeal for God's house. And then the fourth thing is, then and only then, while they're fixing the house up, one of the carpenters opens up some little thing, like this thing, you go, ooh, there's a book down there. Pulls it out, blows all the dust off of it. It's a scroll, of course. I don't know what this is. I can't even read what this language is. Takes it to the scribes and they go, it's the Bible! We lost the Bible. We haven't had it for a generation. Somebody found the Bible! And Josiah's like, what's a Bible? Well, that's where it's all written down, the law of Moses. Oh yeah, they told me about that. And Josiah opens it up and reads. And he begins to weep. Because only then does he realize how far we've missed the mark. This doesn't all start because he read the Bible. It doesn't all start because he understands everything. It starts because he loves God. And he has a zeal for God. And he wants to know God. Only then does he read the Bible. And he gets all the people together. They twist the parents' arms again. They make everybody sit down. And Josiah reads from the beginning to the end. The entire Bible that they had at that time. And all the people actually listen and they weep before God. There's real revival happening. It begins to burn. The words of the book begin to burn in their heart and they remember their covenant before God. And the last thing we see in there is that then there comes a zeal or a passion to be obedient to God. And one of the things they read in there was about Passover. And Josiah says, we've never done this. We've never done any of these things that God says to do. And so they have a Passover feast. And the Bible tells us that their Passover feast or their obedience to God was like no feast that anybody had had before or anybody had ever had since. They became so obedient to God with such joy. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And they were filled with the joy of God. And there was great peace in their generation and great revival. And then Josiah dies. He's about 40 years old. When you read the story, it seems like he dies tragically. I believe he dies mercifully. 
that God allows him to leave the earth because God still hasn't changed his mind about the judgment that's coming. And the judgment still comes. But he allows there to be revival. Judgment's coming on America no matter what. I mean, you can just read in the Bible, judgment's coming on every nation no matter what. Jesus is coming back. But there is hope for revival today. And that hope is not in your 58-year-old, almost 59-year-old people. That hope is in our children, and that hope is in our youth. And I'm going to give you something here just to end with. Jesus said, let the children come to me. Matthew 19, 14, right? Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them from coming to me. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. As a church, as families, as old people, we need to stop hindering the kids from coming to Jesus. Oh, but we have great children's ministry and youth ministry. I know. But I realized when I was on this trip how we have hindered them. How we have not... Hindering means this. We haven't spent the money. We haven't spent the time. We haven't spent the effort to really, really allow them to come to Jesus. Because when they come to Jesus, we know it's going to be twisting our arms too. If we had the kind of spirit... I mean, we don't have to have the same instruments or, or singers or anything like that. But if we have in our worship services the kind of atmosphere of the Holy Spirit that was there it's going to challenge every single one of us. How many of you, when's the last time that you danced in the presence of God? I could ask, raise your hand, and a lot of you would say, no, I haven't never done that. Some people just don't even sing. Some people are visibly and audibly snoring. Well, are you going to blame the people, or are we going to say, let's get rid of the Asherah, let's get rid of all the junk, let's get rid of all the stuff, and let's worship God in the beauty of holiness. Let's worship Him in spirit and in truth. How many of us are honest before God, that we open our hearts before God, and we pour our hearts out before God, because I want to tell you something that I really believe with all my heart, and I couldn't have said this before I went on this trip. I wanted to believe it, but I saw it with my eyes. God is doing something new today. And we better either get with the program or get out of the way. Because Jesus said, you let those children come to me. You let those teenagers come to me. You let those 20-somethings come to me. And get out of the way. Stop hindering them from coming to me. There's a song that we used to sing when I was a kid and when I was in high school. Probably people still sing it today. I don't know. It's called Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Anybody know that song? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Why well, should just sing? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You know what I saw for a week when we were in Branson? Yeah, you know, before they go to bed, everybody's looking at the phone. I'm looking at my phone and all that kind of stuff. But I saw a bunch of teenagers that weren't even interested for a few moments in time anyway. For a few hours each day, they had zero interest in video games. They still had interest in girls and boys. That didn't go away. That's created by God. But they had zero interest in video games. They had zero interest in all this nonsense. And I realized, you know why they're packing their minds full of nonsense? Because Jesus has become so boring for them. Because they haven't really seen Jesus in us. 
And if we can allow, get out of their way and let them see Jesus. When you turn your eyes on Jesus and you look full into his face, everything of this earth just grows strangely dim. It's boring already. All the stuff of this earth is boring in comparison to him. I was reminded again on this trip that heaven is not going to be boring. Praise and worship is not boring. If we think praise and worship is boring, then we're not praising and worshiping like God wants us to praise and worship. Because being in the presence of God is the greatest place to be. David said, I would rather be a doorkeeper. I'd rather be on the security team on the outside under that sun, burning hot, on the security team in the house of God than to live in the, in, in, in the Perry's house. That's probably the biggest house in, in the valley. I don't know. Then to live in Shaleen's house. Who's bigger? You or, I don't know. But I'd rather be in the house of God, even if I'm the lowest person in the house of God, than to live in the biggest tent on this earth. To live in the richest palace that I could live in. And that's the truth. But we've got to open the eyes, open our eyes, by being honest before God, to let the children come to Him and not hinder them from coming. James 4.8 says, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. I see this in the life of Josiah and I see this in the life of our youth and our children today. That if you take one tiny step toward God, He'll take 10,000 steps to you. If you just turn your heart to God, he will, you will find that all of heaven is on your side. I talked about last week, I had that dream about pushing that button. If you just push that button... Just turn your heart to God. When Daniel prayed to God, he got the answer 21 days later because there was a spiritual battle going on in the heavens. But the angel said to him, the very moment that you even set your heart to ask God about this, the answer was already dispatched. It was already sent. It was already on your way, on its way. So if you take a step toward God, he will take 10,000 steps toward you. I believe today that our youth are actually taking a step toward God. And I just want to say, we cannot hinder them. We cannot cling to the ways of our Manasseh and our Hezekiahs and our whatevers. We can't worry about whether we're going to be popular, what we're going to look like. I've said it a million times, I'll say it again. If you're popular with people, you're not popular in heaven. If you're popular in heaven, you won't be popular with people. But you will be popular in hell. You know what I'm talking about? Because those demons... When the seven sons of Sceva tried to drive them out and they couldn't in the book of Acts, they used the name of Paul and those demons said to them, Jesus I know and we know about Paul, but who are you? And they had no power. But when you're popular with Jesus, every demon in hell knows your name. And they have no hold on you and they cannot touch you, as John said. I'm just going to end with this little thing here. So when we were at this rally, they got a bunch of homework. I don't even know if they'll remember all the homework they need to do. I reminded them of one last week. One of them was this little prayer that the guy passed out at one of the services. But it's really good. I saved it, so if nobody else saved it, I'll make a copy for you. You've got to do your homework. It says, this is a letter from my heart. It says, Lord, today I open myself to you. You are my delight. My heart is soft and pliable. Form in me your desires. I commit my ways to you and ask you to finish what you started in me. I ask you to give me wisdom and understanding to know you more. Show me in my heart the picture of your calling and your inheritance for me. 
I desire to know the greatness of your power working in me to carry out your will. Can't you just imagine that something like this is what Josiah we hope you enjoyed the message. Before you leave, we want to remind really you that if you want to continue receiving updates on this sermon, please subscribe to our podcast. If you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at urintonvillianfellowship.com. And we'll see you next time on the YBF Podcast.